you know, in terms of our mission to serve our communities and to take care of our patients, you know, how do you take this uh, information and make the biggest impact possible? Welcome to the Health Pilots podcast presented by the Center for Care Innovations. This podcast is about strengthening the health and well-being of historically underinvested communities. Every episode offers new ideas and practical advice that you can apply today. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Leung, and I serve as the Ambulatory Medical Director at Riverside University Health System. Hi, I'm Suzanne Samuel, and I am a consultant working with CCI. Thank you so much for being here. Dr. Jeffrey Leung also supports the primary care providers at the RUHS Medical Center Clinics and 12 RUHS Community Health Center sites and serves as the chair of family medicine. This year, Jeff has also been working closely with RUHS Public Health in supporting COVID efforts across Riverside County. Dr. Leung enjoys working on the integration and transformation of care delivery in order to provide the community with the best care possible. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Susan. Given the many ways to describe this important work, how do you define health equity? We think of health equity uh, in a few different ways. Uh, we would like to make sure that different groups of patients are all able to access our health care in a way that is easy and convenient. We also want to make sure that those patients are, are receiving the types of supports uh, that are necessary. And those types of supports may vary depending upon individual needs. And then finally, um, we look at outcomes uh, to see, um, you know, in terms of uh, things like blood pressure control or diabetes control, you know, are different groups of patients uh, having different outcomes and are we doing the best to support all of our patients? How do you know when you have achieved health equity? I think that's a great question. I think, you know, health equity is a, a goal that we're all aiming for. And that endpoint may always be sort of further than maybe one or two steps away from where we'd like to be. I think it, it really depends on where we are as an organization. So for us, uh, for example, right now at Riverside, health equity is, is about looking at different types of patient groups and, and making sure that uh, if barriers that are uh, specific to one group or another, that we're trying to address them, that we're trying to tailor our care, that we're trying to provide care that in, a, in a way that is culturally competent. But I think, you know, Probably for all of our organizations, health equity is an ongoing journey. And it's not just about um, helping people with access or helping people with supports, uh, but it's also helping people with uh, ultimately, you know, being able to live uh, sort of the healthiest lives possible. Tell us why equity matters to you at your organization, both personally and professionally. I think equity is something that resonates with a lot of us, uh, who, especially those who are, are serving an underserved or, or vulnerable community. And uh, because many patients from those types of communities uh, often face hurdles that others uh, may not have to face, whether it's um, financial, educational, um, social uh, discrimination, you know, we who are committed to caring for patients in underserved settings, often find ourselves spending a great deal of time and effort um, trying to help with those barriers, which can ultimately help with someone's physical health and overall health. Health equity strategy at a big level and scale might be out of reach for some community clinics who are part of the CCI community. 
Many are focused on small-scale changes that they can test and implement, and some struggle with just where to start. If you were just starting on this journey toward health equity, where would you begin? It definitely depends on where uh, your organization is, but we do think there's a bite-sized way um, or you know, a, an achievable way that each organization can start. The first is, you know, you can take a look at your population or your outcomes and um, start to break it down by different groups. So whether that's by women compared to men, whether that's by different age group, and and then definitely, you, you know, we would advocate for taking a look by race, by ethnicity, by sexual orientation, by gender, identity, and especially for, you know, critical groups that you're looking at, if, if you see significant uh, disparities or differences that don't make sense, or that uh, you know are significant, those are probably opportunities um, to start exploring. And you know, tackling health equity in this way doesn't mean that you'll automatically you know be able to um, eliminate disparities. And oftentimes, you know, we may have a knee-jerk reflex. Uh, we may think uh, because we see a difference in diabetes care for two different groups, you know, the answer is uh, sort of more diabetes care or more coaching or more pharmacy support. But we would probably urge you to, to start by talking with your stakeholders. So uh, whichever groups uh, you, you see disparities in first, we think that um, having conversations, focus groups, uh, exchanges, and, and being able to listen to those groups will probably provide um, sort of the, the highest yield opportunity to, to learn about measures that might be effective or strategic to start with. And so what would be a step from there? I think you outlined the first two, right? Looking at the data talking to people, and then where would you go from there? Yeah, so after, after talking uh, with your stakeholders and, and learning about you know, what your stakeholders fit, may feel are, are the, the most important issues or the most important barriers, then it's helpful to bring that back uh, to your, your teams, uh, your frontline staff, and sort of have a discussion or brainstorming about that. It's rare that you would be able to address everything uh, that comes out of a, a focus group um, or that you hear from, from stakeholders. But then, you know, choosing those one, two, or three things that, you know, maybe the teams feel would be the highest yield, that would be the most practical, that would be doable. Uh, and we do believe that, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, we're very ambitious in what we want to do, which is great. But we have to be careful to not let that ambition sort of uh, prevent us from, from making those first few steps and choosing something that is um, sort of uh, low hanging, uh, uh, high yield and um, you know, achievable and that can be measurable, um, I, I think are all really critical. Um, so for instance, if you know, you're hearing from a focus group that uh, one of the things that really needs to be addressed is transportation or is having more sort of... Uh, uh, linguistically and culturally um, sensitive staff members. But if you don't have a way of measuring that, or if, if that's not something that you've already started to look at in terms of your data, that may actually be a very difficult place to start. So choosing places where you're already doing measurement, where you're already looking at data, that tends to be an easier place because then you can actually evaluate and assess to see whether changes you've made have made a difference. Thanks for those very tangible examples. And can you give an example of something at Riverside that you started with that was low-hanging fruit or achievable, as you just described, to be so important? Yeah, absolutely. So transportation, actually, uh, for us, was something that we thought was solved uh, for most of our patient population. 
we had taken a, a lot of great effort in, into putting into place uh, transportation for, for those uh, you know, who may have difficulty getting to our clinics or a hospital. We partner uh, with a, a managed Medi-Cal uh, plan that is very proactive and supportive uh, and, and provides transportation as long as you know, visits are known in advance. And so we really felt like we had a solution that covered all of our patients. Moreover, we felt like we had a process where we were asking about uh, transportation up front, and we thought that we were catching this. But as we spoke with some of our patients, uh, in this case, who were having difficulty controlling their diabetes, we realized that we had gaps in our system. And uh, you know, either gaps in knowledge uh, from a patient standpoint or a staffing standpoint, and we discovered that you know made many patients who had access to transportation support, either through their health plan or through our system, uh, weren't aware of that. And that uh, in some cases, our team members were, were thinking that uh, patients might have been non-compliant or non-adherent, uh, maybe not wanting to come back for a visit uh, and, and not realizing that transportation was actually the main barrier. You know, sometimes it's it's coming back to an issue that you've already felt like you've solved. Uh, but for us at Riverside, We've actually had to uh, sort of approach transportation, you know, uh, more than on one occasion, and and sort of doing this discovery work and looking at disparities, uh, we realized that again we had a gap in our system. And then in in terms of after we did re-education with our staff and our patients, uh, we discovered that we had a, a great uptake in the use of the transportation services that were already being offered, uh, and that did make a big difference for us because we had patients that we thought were lost to follow up who were not wanting to come back in. Uh, we didn't know why you know, they hadn't come back uh, after three or six months, and suddenly we were seeing them back in the clinic. So how did you do it? So again, uh, you, you know that, that process of looking at you know, maybe a metric or a measure uh, where you have a significant uh, difference uh, between groups, something that you might not expect. Uh, I, I think, again, the second step, uh, really talking to those stakeholders or those patients uh, and making sure that you're listening. Um, and then um, in so doing, I, I think it's also tough, but um, dropping all uh, previously held assumptions. So, you know, if we had gone into some of these discussions and said, well, you know, transportation is not an issue because we know we've taken care of it, then we, we probably wouldn't have dived in further. But really hearing from, from our patients, you know, that that was an issue and then coming back to our staff and sort of doing that validation, you know, I think all of that was important. So really starting from scratch with any of these conversations, not having any pre-held conceptions or assumptions and, um, you know, listening first to the patient, I think are, are all highly valuable. You talked about the importance of questioning assumptions. Did you have a system for doing that? So, you know, I think we're still trying to figure this out. How do you make sure that you're constantly challenging what you think you know? And especially in, in areas where, you know, you may feel something has already been covered, or maybe there's a, a gap that, you know, you, you've sort of excused. We really need to be good about constantly coming back to the things that are not working in our system for our patients. And I think sometimes, you know, we, we become accustomed to the, the challenges either in our system or, or the challenges that our patients face. And that causes us to actually miss seeing some of these things. So I don't know if that makes sense, but, you know, really having low or no tolerance for things that are not working, you know, setting our expectations high 
not allowing ourselves to say that, you know, this is this way because, you know, our community is uh, financially more challenged or because we don't have enough resources or because, uh, you know, we don't have enough people. I think, you know, for us, it's, it's, you know, having to say we need to do the best for our patients every single time. And if, if we're not doing that, what do we need to take another look at? What do we need to reevaluate? And what do we need to question in terms of our own assumptions? And, and finally, what can we learn from our patients? Would your advice differ for a public hospital versus, for example, a small clinic? And I know you have both at Riverside. So just curious if when you're looking at disparities and where to begin, do you take different approaches or is everything you said apply to regardless of size? I think these are good steps, uh, no matter uh, if you're a small clinic or a large hospital. We do know that um, uh, with, with large hospitals, sometimes you have the benefit of uh, you know, infrastructure or teams that, you know, can help coordinate or do this work. Um, but really, it's, it's that same process. And if you miss those steps in terms of listening and talking with the key stakeholders, including your patients and your frontline staff, then you can easily put into place solutions that may not be highly beneficial to patients. So buy-in is so important for equity work. You've talked about this a little bit. And we're in a national moment when people are talking about equity in important ways. But it's still a topic with a lot of emotional resonance and including recognizing the impact of this year's events on many of our colleagues who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. What strategies have you seen at Riverside or elsewhere of how to get leaders engaged around equity, both for internal strategy efforts and for patient-facing efforts? So that's a, a big question. Um, and I think we've seen a variety of strategies with different groups. So, you know, our, our county uh, board of supervisors did make a statement uh, uh, regarding uh, racism as a public health crisis. Uh, and, and that can definitely be helpful if you have that within your context. We do know that uh, race and ethnicity can be uh, highly charged and emotional topics. You know, one approach that we've taken at, at Riverside is to really try to break down the social determinants and, and sort of the determinants of health that we want to support with our patients. So we, we've actually created a tool uh, called a whole person health score assessment, which is a holistic way of measuring health. And um, the reason why that helps us is it, it actually looks at things like not only physical and emotional health, but things like resource utilization, socioeconomics uh, in terms of finances, education, employment, things like ownership and activation, and finally, nutrition and lifestyle. And while all those pieces um, do not necessarily um, sort of shout race or ethnicity or disparity, what it allows us to do is to um, do an individualized or tailored assessment of each individual or patient and then support them in a tailored or custom way. And we think that that's actually one way um, that, that we can try to close disparities for different types of groups that may evolve and change over time. Uh, we may focus on, on certain uh, racial groups. We may focus later on you know, sexual orientation or gender identity, but those different groups may change. What we hope is that we have an approach that can be standard and, and support uh, disparities work, uh, regardless of, of which groups we're trying to help uh, bring to equity. When you're starting out and you need to get leadership engaged, what would you recommend? So if you're trying to get leadership engaged uh, with uh, topics regarding race, ethnicity, or, or racism, 
you know, I think there's both a uh, a logical uh, part of a, a persuasive argument as well as an emotional piece. We've always found it helpful to have data behind us, but I think what's most powerful is is usually starting with the patient story. So if you have a patient story that that really sort of um, articulates the vision that you're trying to get at or the the challenge or the problem, we know that can always be, that's typically very humanizing. Uh, It's much easier to sort of connect with and understand, and people will often retell that story. So, you know, we found that to be very powerful. And and of course, if you can get patients to tell it uh, in their own voice from a first, you know, hand perspective, we think that that's even more engaging as well. Can you share a story that you've used at Riverside around this work? So in terms of race and ethnicity, I think we have stories on a daily basis. I think, you know, the, the most common type of story that we hear is, you know, patients come to us for what they think are typical medical issues. So, um, you know, they come to us for their diabetes, for their high blood pressure, for their heart disease, for their chronic ailments. And they feel like there are certain topics they can talk about and, and certain topics that maybe are not meant for a doctor's office. You know, in trying to look at people holistically, we've really tried to give people permission uh, to talk about those other issues that, you know, are important in people's lives and also, you know, help people understand that you know, these other aspects of, of uh, people's lives are really interconnected with physical health. So, you know, I think common stories are really whenever we, we get into the, the personal lives of people, you know, struggles that often they're dealing with either with, you know, relationships, self-confidence, uh, emotional health, people telling their stories about uh, how they're, they feel like they're being treated uh, or perceived. And, you know, being able to be acknowledged uh, or recognized as sort of human individuals who are suffering uh, through difficulties, you know, and then when teams are able to connect in that way, uh, it, it oftentimes opens up a whole new um, channel for dialogue. Um, so, uh, you know, that can definitely occur in the areas of race, but oftentimes it's it's also things that that may feel mundane. You know, it, it may be about employment. It may be about home stressors. It may be about finances. It may, it may be about living situation. And you you ultimately realize that it's, it is actually all tied back um, to disparities. So it sounds like staff are super important to get engaged from the very beginning. I think engaging staff in this dialogue about equity uh, is very similar to, you know, the way we would engage leadership. Usually, if you have a a patient story or uh, an individual that maybe even a staff member knows of because they've taken care of this this patient, I think that tends to be more powerful and palpable. How are you seeing organizations addressing health inequities today in ways that might be different from even a year or two ago? Organizations now have health equity as, as part of their vocabulary. And, you know, one, two, three years ago, I think, you know, talking about race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity were often uh, topics that many staff were uncomfortable with. You know, when we had to do our initial training years ago, you know, for front desk staff, even in terms of asking about sexual orientation and gender identity, you know, we found that we had to do a lot of practice conversations. Um, You know, as much training as you do, um, if, if people aren't used to having conversations about sensitive topics, you know, we found that that could be 
an unintentional deterrent for being able to capture um, data that we thought was vital. You know, because, you know, all of these topics are much more commonplace, um, uh, you know, much less taboo. Um, they're, they're sort of routine and part of standard work now uh, for many organizations. I think the next challenge is, you know, um, now that we're collecting this information, what do we do with it? And, um, you know, that's really the big question. And, you know, in terms of our mission to serve our communities and, and to take care of our patients, you know, how do you take this uh, information and make the biggest impact possible? And it may actually be in ways that we don't expect. You know, again, we're going to start with looking at the numbers that we typically measure. Uh, We're going to look at uh, blood pressure and diabetes, which are really important. But, you know, our guess is that as organizations start diving into all of this work, and, you know, it, it really will ultimately propel you upstream. Uh, and, and we'll be finding that uh, we're dealing with many more social and economic uh, factors that we'll be talking about attitudes and beliefs. We'll be talking about how you sort of heal and, and connect communities. And those may actually have the biggest, uh, those types of things may have the biggest impact on our, on our population health outcomes even more than, than some of the traditional metrics that we tend to focus on first. I do want to talk more about data, but before we go there, I'm so interested in what you just said about some of these social determinants. Are there any examples you can share of something that you have started drilling down into more or a place where you are focusing efforts? So uh, at Riverside, we're, we're fortunate to have, first of all, uh, teams to support our complex care patients. And those teams include care managers and care coordinators, sort of uh, behavioral health managers uh, and specialists, as well as uh, community health workers. We also have a health coach program that supports our patients, you know, most commonly with chronic diseases like diabetes and, and high blood pressure, um, helping patients uh, set self-management goals and, and sort of meet those goals. You know, with those programs, uh, we're fortunate to, to have additional support uh, for our primary care providers and, and teams. Because of, of this added support, uh, we're able to dive into more of the personal uh, issues that patients are, are facing and, and, and then provide additional support. And what we mean by that is, um, you know, if, if you have a, a typical uncontrolled uh, diabetic patient, the standard response is increase medications or add medications. So many times that doesn't work because we've, we've missed something critical in that patient's life. Um, so whether it has to do with uh, ownership and activation, um, sort of uh, um, uh, that patient's education about their own uh, disease process, or whether there is a, a social or economic barrier, for instance, uh, joblessness, caregiver stress, uh, something else that's going on, if you're not addressing those things, then that conversation about changing medications may be sort of a moot point. Um, so we've really focused uh, at you know, looking at you know, what are, are some of the emotional health needs, what are some of the uh, ownership uh, and activation needs of patients. Definitely because we're doing a, a holistic um, assessment of, of our patients, we are uh, doing more referrals to our nutritionists and dietitians. 
And those those are all areas that um, you know we we'd like to sort of further develop and, and mature. Um, we're also trying to to do more work in terms of connecting patients with community resources as well, and um, figuring out how to do that and, and interlay that with your electronic health record system. Uh, I think can be both challenging, uh, but we think will be highly beneficial. So now let's get into data. One obstacle that we're hearing with working on health equity is around capturing data on equity. And we've talked some about this, especially in light of telehealth. How do you ask patients about race and ethnicity to collect that race, ethnicity, and language data, also known as real data, and the sexual orientation and gender identity data, known as SOGI data? How do you ask them in a way that helps capture good data to inform care delivery, but also allows care teams to educate the patient about why you're asking in the first place and how that data is going to help the patient. You know, the last part of your question is is really the beginning of the answer. Um, and, you know, in, in our scripting with our patients, we always try to start off by, by saying, you know, the reason why we'd like to ask you the following questions um, is so that we can, um, you know, know you better and, and provide better care for you. And we, we typically find that with that approach, you know, most patients are, are very understanding. I, I think, you know, when you don't preface questions about, about sensitive information, that's when you may have people who, you know, either feel defensive or um, a little caught off guard. You know, why are you asking me about these very personal um, issues? But again, if you preface it in, in the way that, you know, in order to be able to take better care of you, you know, support you in the best way possible. You know, we, we want to know about you as an individual. We want to be able to tailor your care. And, uh, you know, if you help us with these questions, we think we'll be able to do a better job. Framing it in that way, I think it is usually uh, reassuring uh, for patients and, and can make that conversation easier. What are some of the strategies you use in helping staff get comfortable with doing this and make sure that the data they were collecting was going to be high quality data? So I I think this is an ongoing conversation um, and definitely not a a one event um, and and done. You know, I think the initial conversations uh, have to be about the questions that might typically come from patients. You know, you you could expect them from your frontline staff as well. You know, why is it so important that we need this? You know, what is the purpose? Um, These are things that maybe I'm not comfortable talking about with most people. You know, um, why do you need to know? And and making sure that your staff kind of have that understanding and, and buy-in first, uh, we think is is important uh, before you even start talking about the scripting uh, with patients, uh, because really you you need to convince your staff about the importance of it uh, before that before they can convince patients uh, how important it is to collect that data. You know, I, I think uh, the other piece is. Uh, for us, we found that really it's something that you have to keep on talking about. So, you know, you may feel like you've done a training, you may feel like you're getting pretty good data and you need to somehow either spot check that or monitor it or, or revisit. But probably any part of a, a plan to collect uh, real data or race, ethnicity and language data um, needs to include a component where you're revisiting and going back and, and sort of checking to see if the things that you've think are happening are continuing to happen. Your whole person health score gets to that holistic element of assessing other forms of data. If you weren't in a place to implement such a rigorous structure, what might be a way to start to capture some of that information as data beyond SOGI and real data? You know, I think there is a tension 
between capturing data that can fit in a discrete data field in your electronic health record and capturing uh, sort of uh, very meaningful data that, that can sometimes come from open-ended questions. And, and so I think, you know, if a clinic site or hospital is, is sort of not ready to dive into an entire holistic assessment, you know, getting back to questions that we may often think of as, you know, chit-chat or part of, uh, you know, soft conversations, those can actually sometimes really become the meat of a visit. So true questions about, you know, how are you doing? How have things uh, been for you? We know that, you know, you've been taking care of your sick mother all of these months. That must be really difficult. You know, uh, can you tell me how that's been for you? You know, providing patients with an opening like that. Or, or if it's for a brand new patient, oftentimes it can just be starting off with things like, you know, can you tell me a little bit about your, your work? You know, what do you enjoy about it? Uh, you know, who do you live with at home? Uh, how are things at home? What do you enjoy the most, uh, uh, you know, in your life? Uh, what, are, what are some of the things that are hardest for you, uh, you know, to get through during your day? And, uh, you know, how do you feel about your relationships uh, with, uh, you, you know, the people you live with or the people you love? Oftentimes, you know, these other types of open-ended questions will almost give that permission to patients to talk about things that they might not have planned to talk about uh, during a visit. And that can be a good way to get started. It will not give you discrete data, but it will start giving you insight into maybe areas of a patient's life that, that really do uh, could benefit from additional support. You've noticed that community members reach out to providers and the health system at Riverside in different ways than you had been reaching out to them. What was occurring and how did you figure that out? Yeah, I, I think, you know, even uh, the COVID pandemic has, has been very insightful for us. Probably like uh, many, you know, of our audience members, you know, Riverside, uh, we used a traditional sort of uh, brick wall approach uh, where, you know, we expect sort of patients to come into our, our clinics and our hospital and uh, we care for those individuals in the best way possible. You know, I think that's one way of connecting with patients, but definitely patients uh, have different ways of, that they think uh, are the most convenient for them. And, and coming into a clinic physically is not always the easiest way. You know, what we've sort of uh, learned again is that for many patients, uh, virtual care, uh, whether it's by telephone or by video, is often more convenient and more patient-centered. And so, you know, we think one benefit of the pandemic is that it's really helped accelerate efforts and are doing a better job extending those types of virtual visits to patients. And, you know, being able to be reimbursed for them definitely makes that much more sustainable. But I, I think, uh, you know, it's a constant learning for us because we always have assumptions about what we think uh, patients want and what we think patients need. And we really need to challenge ourselves by continuing to go back to our patients and our community and ask them, you know, what it is that they need and what it is that they feel like would serve them best. So in summary, what advice would you have liked to receive when you started on the journey to health equity at Riverside? Yeah, I, I wish someone had told me that, you know, although equity sounds like a big and um, uh, almost, uh, it sounds like a big and unachievable goal, it sounds like something very ambitious and something that only certain groups uh, that are very sophisticated might be able to tackle. I wish someone had told me at the beginning, you know, you actually work on equity every day. 
And, uh, you know, equity is embedded in all of the patient care that we do. You know, for all those who, who believe in, in supporting uh, vulnerable populations, who believe in social justice, we're actually, you know, doing things in each of our visits to support equity. And uh, we just may not realize it. And really, equity is, is, in another way, it's about individualizing care. You know, what at the end of the day, you know, I have this individual in front of me who needs care. What does this person need the most? And thinking beyond, you know, a, a medicine or a surgery or procedure, you know, is there anything else that if we could help this person with would change the trajectory of their life and their health? All of that has to do with equity. And, and I think, you know, where we're trying to move towards is figuring out how to systematize this how to you, you know, capture uh, the type of equity work that's done in terms of data and make it easier for all of the members on our team to work on and support equity in a language that makes sense to everybody. 